Imagine a future where a prostate biopsy to determine if a man has prostate cancer is no longer needed. I cannot imagine that, but today's conversation with Dr. Mark Emberton might have changed my mind that there is such a future possible based on a German study where they looked at PSMA and MRI without biopsy and they were pretty much 100% sure that if those two images came out positive for prostate cancer upon treatment for prostate cancer, they all had cancer in their prostate. Is that possible here in the U.S.? Is that going to be something that's going to be standard of care in the future? That's part of my conversation with Mark Emberton, a interventional oncologist, urologist within Division of Surgery and Dean of the Faculty of Medical Sciences at the University of College of London. Mark is clinically active and holds the position of honorary consultant urologist at University of College London Hospitals and Trust, where he works as a specialist in prostate cancer. Great conversation with Mark on the future of biopsies for the prostate and screening for prostate cancer and how the UK system is different than that of the US. Enjoy my conversation with Dr. Mark Emberton. Let's go. Welcome to the Dr. Geo podcast. I am your host, Dr. Geo where it is my intention, my goal to help you improve and optimize your state health and how to live better with a Today we have Dr. Mark Emberton. Mark, they already know all about you from another recording with your bio. So thanks for being on. What time, what time is it over there in the UK now? Welcome to the Dr. Geo podcast. I am your host, Dr. Geo, where it is my intention, my goal to help you improve and optimize your prostate health and how to live better with a Today we have Dr. Mark Emberton. Mark, they already know all about you from another recording with your bio. So thanks for being on. What time What time it's, is it over uh, there in the UK now? It's 11 in the afternoon. So in England, yeah. Oh, time. that's not too bad, right? Not siesta time. There's no, no siesta in the UK, was, right? Yeah, I, I wish we were Depends. Well, thanks again for being on, Mark. You know, I think you we've met through the NYU courses. You pretty much speak every year. And you bring a tremendous amount of energy and knowledge to the program. And you have a very interesting take on all things related to prostate cancer. So I thought it would be a good idea to have you on. Let's start with this, Mark. I find, so I do have a few patients in the UK. And actually, I refer some patients that want to go to the UK or live here and in the UK. You're their doctor if I'm guiding them. I think you're very I think you're pretty familiar with the medical system in the US as well. How are things different as it relates to prostate cancer? For example, the notion of an MRI prior to a biopsy. I think you guys have done before we ha have and our insurance companies took a long time to kind of get on board and pay for it, right? So Though the evidence was clear that an MRI, a, a 3T MRI, pelvic MRI was better for, for a targeted biopsy, it took us a while to get going on that, and you guys were doing it for a while. The other component is this PSMA PET scan, which I think some countries are also getting prior to treatment and so forth, rather than afterwards or waiting for a recurrence. So how are things different uh, with the way you guys do things clinically with prostate cancer versus it's us a great, in the US. Great story. There's a plane flying over. Apologies if you can hear it. So, yeah. It, no worries. I mean, I think we were the first country to systematically adopt MRI as a kind of healthcare system. And just to remind listeners and viewers that the UK, most 
patients in the UK are looked after uh, by the NHS, the National Health Service. Uh, this is a this is free at the point of service and is paid for out of general taxation. And really, it's a system that comprises a general practitioner that looks after three or 4,000 people. And if the general practitioner is worried about your health, he or she will refer you on to secondary care, which is usually the hospital, but increasingly quasi-hospitals, diagnostic hubs like, like you have in the US. Access healthcare privately. And it's in the order of around 3% overall. So it's very small. Obviously, in London, with the international clientele that we have, it's much, much greater. If you go to the rural north of England, or indeed parts of Scotland, it's virtually zero. So so, so it's largely an NHS system. The, the good thing about there are lots of bad things about the NHS, which you hear about in the uh, newspapers, uh, but, but there are some good things. <laughs> and right. if, if a healthcare system gets it right and makes a kind of early decision based on evidence, it results in everybody benefiting from that decisional policy change. And in fact, in April 2019, mm -hmm. I remember the day, I'll never forget the day, when NICE, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, which is an independent body that evaluates evidence that we produce as doctors and researchers, and then makes recommendations to the NHS, and then the NHS either accept it or approve it. And they have quite an interesting process of doing that, that we sometimes provide evidence on. Anyway, spring 2019, they said that from now on, and I often show this in a slide, that all men should have an MRI prior to biopsy, that the biopsy should be conducted using the information derived in the MRI. In other words, you should target the abnormality. I'm sure we'll talk a lot more about that uh, in, in the podcast. And that consider, so th these words are careful, consider not biopsying men that have a normal MRI after a discussion of the pros and cons with a patient. So that was pretty helpful. What's considered a normal MRI uh, from a pirate perspective, a according to these guidelines? Normal. So it's a kind of traffic light system. One and two is okay. green, reassured yellow or amber or orange, depending on which country you live, is needs review. In other words, repeat in a year or something. <laughs> Same as mammography, actually. And a red light or red flag mm -hmm. would be a Pyrads 4 and 5, which would uh, trigger referral to a specialist for consideration of biopsy. So, Because so remember, before right. spring 2019, it was a linear system. If you were a man at risk, you had a high PSA, it was biopsy or nothing. It was so all men went to biopsy unless they refused. Mm -hmm. Now we've got a triage test that allows us to risk stratify men and actually avoid biopsy in about half, depending on where you do your cutoff. So I, I don't biopsy men with not with pyrads one and two. I don't biopsy men with a pyrads three with a low PSA density. In other words, you know. So what we do is divide the PSA mm -hmm. by the prostate volume. And if the if the number the result you get out of that is above 0 .150, 0 0.15, I tend to lean forward and say, look, I think we should have biopsy. If it's below 0 0.15, I tend to lean back and say, look, this is fine. We'll just repeat the scan in a couple of years. And so we've now got a system of care. Mm -hmm. So we do a million biopsies a year in Europe. From April, I'm extrapolating now because this is UK advice, not European advice. From April 2019, that means that half a million biopsies don't get done. Um, and I would argue for good reasons. So we're concentrating all the efforts um, on the people that need it and are likely to benefit from it. So there again, we took a while. I think it was only within the last, well, 
since 2019, I remember our office and our, <laughs> we don't have an NAH system, as you know, and most of the public knows. So our secretaries and practice managers calling insurance to make sure that try to get a MRI paid for, and it was just brutal. Things have changed quite a bit, but only for the last year or year and a half or so. How about as it relates to P PSMA scanning? I think that knowing where the cancer is yeah. prior to treatment is a good thing. And so if it's if it's uh, if it's outside of the prostate gland, then other treatments might be uh, you know better choice. But what's the, what are the guidelines so related to PET scans? So you know again, PSMA PET was very late into the USA, l largely for kind of technical reasons. Um, it's it's interesting. PSMA PET yeah. uh, was adopted very quickly in Australia, and for some reason, it's very cheap there. And we don't quite know yeah. why, but it, it just is. Yeah. And you can't walk into a <laughs> into your urologist's office without getting a PSMA PET. Italy also has great ease in doing nuclear medicine scans. Again, it's a kind of regulatory thing. Uh, and and, and they, they, they basically can adopt it as a kind of me too type thing. Whereas in the States, I think the PSMA PET required a completely mm -hmm. new tranche of evaluation and, and before the regulatory authorities would approve it. And even then it was in an experimental mode. Places like Hopkins had it and then nobody else could get it. So, so we're kind of in between. So we have easy access to it at the moment. Uh, without getting a phone call or having to argue or make or do special pleading, I can get a PSMA PET on anybody who I deem to be at risk. And that's basically a PSA over 10, Gleason 4 plus 3 or more. So that's grade group 3, 4 or 5. Or if the story is unusual, mm -hmm. you know, if they're relapsing after radiotherapy or something like that. So, so all the kind of triggers for high risk, I can pretty much get a scan. It, I can't do it on everybody. There just isn't the capacity in the UK to do it. And remember that the PSMA PET is quite, you have to make the reagent in batches and the half-life is short, so you have to use it quickly. So you have to have patients waiting to have it so you don't waste it. So there's a little bit of um, kind of coordination that mm. the laboratories do. So that they, they have the patient ready, then they call it in, as it were, um, and they give it. But I mean, once you start using it, it's transformative. Um, you just don't go back to bone scans. Yeah. And uh, I have a fairly low threshold for using it, as you can probably determine. Great. What? How are you? How are physicians in the UK, maybe throughout Europe, but let's just say UK, incentivized to either do or not do, or be aggressive and not be aggressive? I ask this because I know the audience. I hear this every week. I'm their trusted source because I don't do any of these treatments. So, but Doc, Doctor Geo, you know, I, every urologist just wants to poke and remove my prostate. It's like if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, and they have this feeling now. With those in my network, NYU docs, you know, Chicago with Scott Egner and you know major institutions, that's, I know that's not the case, but that, I think that is the case in many other places in private practices. What is the, how does that work in, in, in the UK? Is there, um, as best as you can tell, that feeling from, from patients that, you know, of course he wants to remove my prostate, he's a surgeon. So I think it's a really good question. And when you go around the world, I have the privilege of doing that to lecture, visit, teach, train. You, you see the different incentives that drive healthcare decision making. And I think there are three elements. You know, one is, mm -hmm. one is the manner by which things are remunerated. We'll talk about that in a second. The other is the fear of medico-legal recrimination. Um, and, you know, to what degree will my peers support me if, if I get it wrong? I miss a small cancer. Um, and, and the third is... Yeah, malpractice yes, litigation and, and, and of some sort. And the third is culture, which, which goes to your, I was trained to do this, I'm good at it. 
and therefore I'll do it, you know. So, and, and they're, they're all important and they're, mm -hmm. they're in, in driving decision-making. We are not remunerated for acting. So in other words, we don't have to do something to get paid. And so the incentive there is actually to do less, <laughs> so, so which might, might good or bad. Mm -hmm. So we're pay, I'm paid the same whether I biopsy somebody or not. Right. And, and therefore, the aspect of new remuneration is not, you know, I don't have staff to pay. I don't have rent to pay. I don't have, you know, all the overheads to cover. So therefore, I'm not incentivized in that way. Mm -hmm. I don't think the remuneration thing is the strongest. You know, the worry about i've just been on another call when it wasn't a call it was an online conference and there were american colleagues and i was talking about not biopsying men with normal mris and i'm happy to justify that to you in a second and <laughs> two of the colleagues said look you know i yeah. can't do that in the us because they'll go and get biopsied elsewhere they'll find a bit of gleason three plus four and then i'll have the lawyers on me and and it's just not worth their while it's not worth their risk and of course Patients are more likely to do that in the US, get a second or third opinion, particularly in New York. In, in the UK, most patients mm -hmm. trust the system that they are in, though, interestingly, there's a, there's a bit of legislation going through which, which gives the, the right of the patient or carer to insist on a second opinion. So in other words, it becomes not a doctor's decision, it becomes the patient's right. To, to And this was a very tragic death that happened in a young girl with sepsis that was widely reported mm. and the mother asked for second opinion and it, you know, they just dismissed her. Um, and clearly uh, she was septic um, mm. and she died of sepsis. And uh, so this will probably become law, I think in, 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 in the UK quite soon. So, so the systems um, do drive, you know, we, we, and, and it's impossible to um, understand healthcare unless you, unless one accepts that. And each system has good things about it and bad things about it. I don't think there's a perfect system. Otherwise, we will have all adopted it. You know, so we have long waiting times. Right. You know, we have low capacity. Uh, we, you know, perhaps some doctors right. that don't biopsy enough people because they just want an easier life. You know, so it, you know, it's 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 um, not pointing fingers. I'm just saying. <laughs> Interesting. We are all um, the products of the system in which we work. Mark, uh, you're a, a preeminent uh, thought leader in the world of prostate cancer. I have to say that if I'm a 52-year-old man and I want to see, you know, Mark Emberton, Dr. Emberton, my wait will be, what, a year to see you? <laughs> like, how would that work? My PSA is high. How long is the well, wait to see someone see like you? On the NHS, unless, you, uh, unless you've got an NHS number, you know, you have to be British or live in, you know, you have to fulfill the criteria. Um, yeah, sure. So, I mean, uh, don't get thrown off by my New York accent. You, you Assume can, that I am British. Me. So I also, I also um, you know, work privately. I have a small, I have four, I do four jobs. So I'm a NHS urologist. I'm a private urologist. I'm a researcher. And I'm Dean of the Faculty of Medical Sciences um, at a large London university. So, so I, do I have a small private practice and I do advise US citizens um, and we, we, they send me their MRI report and their, um, uh, and their histology report. And then we have a Zoom call and then we normally get the images reviewed. The images are sent over electronically, we get them reviewed and then we have a second call. And they're normally asking me about whether they are eligible for focal treatment. So these are men with clinically significant disease who've been offered surgery or radiotherapy in the US um, and are exploring the opportunity for having tissue selective therapy. So in other words, me treating the cancer plus a margin and trying to preserve as much of the prostate as possible 
because they want to preserve erections, want to stay fertile, and don't want to leak urine. Um, and, and that's a fairly complex risk assessment because I'm asking different questions to the questions that the urologist or radiologist were asking. I'm asking questions about location, about sure. duplicity, about, you know, I need to know exactly where the cancer is and where it isn't. Whereas actually most of the diagnostic process before our conversation was about, do you have cancer? Yeah, so that's, that's for me, that's... Mm, mm, mm. Is the technology up to speed with that? We can go into right into your risk stratification process. Is the technology, I mean, there's always room for improvement, but is it up to speed where you could be really close to, as close as possible to 100% to determine where the location of the cancer so, is at yes. this point? I mean, I think that there, I, I'm, I can only use a very high quality MRI, and that's why I review the MRI. We assess the quality, and if we don't like the quality, we repeat it, uh, which is sometimes an issue. What's considered high quality we've got, MRI, we've got scoring Mark? System, for you. Uh, which is in the public domain. Um, and, and there's, a, there's yet another five-point score. There, there are lots of five-point scores that your listeners will know. But MRI has a five-point score. Histology has a five-point score. MRI quality has a five-point score. I won't look at anything that that is below four. So four and five I can rely upon. And there's a kind of checklist that the radiologists do to check that the you know all the prostate's there. There hasn't been too much movement. Excellent. There's no gas in the rectum that no sequences are missing. And yes, so the negative predictive value of a high quality MRI for clinically significant disease is in the order of about 97%. Um, random biopsy um, mm -hmm. has a you know very, very low negative predictive value, nowhere near that, probably in the order of about 40, 15%. Nothing can get close to it. And obviously, if, if we see a lesion, it's either been targeted or we target it, so we verify its nature. So the low specificity, so I'm using kind of words that are confusing. So, so, so in other words, sometimes the MRI results in an abnormality that proves to be a false positive. In other words, when we biopsy it, it's not a cancer. It's usually yep. a bit of inflammation or benign nodule. That's fine. We just monitor it. If it proves to be a cancer, we know that the lesion is cancerous. And if the rest of the prostate is normal, I'm quite happy to proceed. Now, increasingly... One's adding PSMA to the mix sometimes, particularly in the higher risk groups, to see if it augments the location and gives me a normal signal elsewhere. If your MRI and PSMA is positive, you have a 100% chance of having a prostate cancer based on the German data. They were removing prostates without a biopsy, mm. and all of the men had clinically significant cancer. Um, they, were, they were doing MRI and PSMA PET, and for whatever reason, uh, they chose not to do a biopsy. Are they trying to do without biopsies in, yes. in Germany? Is that yes. the purpose the of this was study? And they weren't very clear why these men didn't have a biopsy. <laughs> but, but they said it was kind of patient choice. Nevertheless, I mean, it was a, a hugely interesting study uh, because um, it basically told us if your MRI and PSMA are positive, in a se if you're asking the question, do I have clinically significant cancer? The answer is yes, 100% of the time. So, you know, there were no misses. There aren't many zeros in medicine. There aren't many 100% in medicine. Now, admittedly, there are only right. 20, 24 patients and 54 lesions um, that were looked at. So so the numbers weren't huge. And, and nothing in the end is 100%. Mm -hmm. But that's pretty good. 
Am I advocating a biopsy-free pathway? No. Will there be a largely biopsy-free pathway in the mm. future? Almost certainly. Uh, with AI, better MRI sequences, um, mm. and multi-cancer early detection tests from the blood, where we look at fragments of DNA, I, th I think we'll be able to get all the information we need. And remember, we remove a kidney without a biopsy, you know, huge operation, lots of morbidity. And we do that on probability, you know, if the, with a 95% chance of it being a, a kidney tumor. So, and we do it with lung as well, actually. Oh, so yeah. a small lung nodule, your smoker, uh, what they do is watch it. And if that nodule gets bigger, you have your lobectomy. Um, so they, so we, do, we remove a bit of lung without a biopsy. Mm -hmm. So, so I think it's a really interesting concept. Um, and many men, particularly physicians, always ask, do you think you can treat me without a biopsy? Uh, because they're obviously worried about spread the, of the cancer. Right. You want to share some thoughts on that? So as you can imagine, Mark, I see these guys yeah. who have concerns about um, – of spreading of cancer. So they want me to tell them you don't need a biopsy yeah. is what they really want me to say. Uh, they want me to tell them if they know they have a positive biopsy for prostate cancer, well, you don't need treatment. You know, they want me, they want to do natural things. And of course, I have to be very responsible with my response. As it relates to spreading of cancer um, w through a biopsy needle, my response is this, and I'm asking you to say, well, you know, it, I always want to get, I'm not in interested in being right. I'm interested in getting it right. So my response is, it makes theoretical sense that it might happen if you're, if you are inserting a needle, no cancer cell in the prostate, as you retract, there's what's called p potential seeding, where now some of those cancer cells are going outside of the capsule. I think it's never been proven as best as I know, but it makes theoretical sense that might or can happen. Now, that said, I've seen thousands of patients post biopsies, and it's really, really difficult to say if that in, influenced any recurrence of prostate cancer or any metastasis. What's your response to this notion of spreading prostate cancer through biopsy? Uh, it's, it's a good question because it's the patients that ask us that question most commonly. And that, to me, makes it a good question. And I say the same as you. I say we don't know, um, um, and because there's no counterfactual, because everybody with a cancer diagnosis has had a bio um, eventually, either through a needle or through removal of, of the organ and confirmation. And mm. there are animal models, that the murine sarcoma model, um, so that, that's a mouse sarcoma model where they implant sarcoma. I'm not exactly sure the kind of model it is, but anyway, it's a kind of recapitulation, a recreation mm. of cancer in a small animal. And if you stick needles in that, it, it triggers metastases. So, so there's something uh, trauma in that particular case that, that kind of tends towards progression or transformation. Um, so, and, we, and there are other cancers such as kind of kid, not kidney cancers, but what we call urothelial cancers. So the cancers that occur inside the lining of the kidney that that if you, you know, if you stick a needle in the kidney, they tend to track that down. So there are cancers do do that. I agree uh, that we have no evidence that it happens in prostate, though there are a few case reports. If you look hard enough, and some of my patients have, you can find them of cancer cells in the <laughs> rectum, but they are very, very few and far between. Having said that, it's hard to 
defend, it's hard to imagine that biopsy is a good thing for cancers. Yeah, so if you turn it around, um, mm. if you had a cancer mm. that was being held in check by the immune system, you know, whether a cancer grows or not is a balance between the cancer's genetic ability to grow and the immune system's ability to keep it in check. And it's like a seesaw, you know, and, you know. Yeah, I call it the micro environment, which is what I what I do. But Gio, wow, this patient's PSA comes down, active surveillance, do a follow-up biopsy, biopsy's negative. What do you do? Do you treat prostate cancer naturally? Well, first of all, the second biopsy, I'm always very honest. I want to yeah. say that I treat prostate cancer. Second biopsy could have just missed it. All right, let's have a... But the other thing is that the main um, answer that I give is I'm treating the microenvironment. And through treating the microenvironment, good things tend to happen and it creates a hostile environment to cancer cells. So the, the immune system yeah. is a big part of that. So if you yeah, I definitely yeah, align with what you're saying. The microenvironment, uh, you create a pro-proliferative, inflammatory, acute environment. So, so you know, and by pro-proliferative, I mean, you, you basically change the, the gearing of the cells to start growing and attract white blood cells in, vascular in, because it's trauma. And, and that's how all of us um, uh, are designed to respond to trauma. Uh, and, we, and that's happened over hundreds of thousands of years of genetic evolution, is, is that trauma initially initiates an inflammatory mm -hmm. reaction, and then a healing process. And you would yep. think that, because yep. we don't know, Right. So it, it could be good for it might be good, for you know, in terms of slowing down cancer growth, but also it could be bad. What I think we could all agree on is that you are changing the microenvironment. And with transrectal biopsies, you're introducing bacteria, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which is another way of changing mm -hmm. the microenvironment. So uh, and those bacteria, as we know, in prostates, that there is bacterial and viral bacterial DNA, viral RNA in prostate. So we know that bacteria can reside in the prostate. And most people after adolescence do have evidence of that. And with the transrectal biopsies, which we don't do in the UK anymore, um, uh, you know, introduce bacteria. And these days, some of the bacteria is it can be resistant to to antibiotics. So so I'm. Mark, are you doing mostly transperineal yeah, at this point and, or and all transperineal? Last 10 years. I, I think the UK is transrectal <laughs> biopsy free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. You know, I didn't. I didn't. I don't think I knew that actually. Wow. And there's okay. several reasons for that. The the prevalence of multi-resistant E. coli is quite high in the UK, and therefore mm -hmm. the risk of sepsis, if you go via the transrectal route, got unacceptably high. And it, it, it is quite geographical. It, it's Southeast Asia. Australia was very high. UK was high, and. Uh, yeah, and so so we switched a long time ago. So we're not even using antibiotics now. In so we do transperineal biopsies without Amazing. antibiotics um, in the majority of cases. I think you're causing a problem. So much of my audience is, you know, I have quite a few members from the UK, but most of them, of course, are from the US. And they're just going to say, you know what, I'm high risk. I have my PSA. I'm going to go to the UK and I'm going to find this Dr. Emberton person because I want to get things done there. It seems like, you know, of course, we're, you know, in the US, we tend to be a little pompous. We're, we're the best in the world, of course. It seems like we're behind in many things and adopting many of the things that, you know, throughout Europe, they've adopted way before us as it relates to diagnosis, stratification, and even treatment. Yeah, I worry about, I think I'm going to be a little bit provocative now. So I think transrectal biopsy is, is substandard care now because by going via the perineum, 
you avoid infection virtually completely because you suddenly have a sterile field uh, and also you avoid rectal bleeding. Now, you know, rectal bleeding is not normally big, but it can be. Um, and if you hit a hemorrhoid or something, you can have a pretty major bleed requiring a transfusion. Um, and the risk of, of you know, multi-resistant E. coli is real. Um, and if you get ill with that, uh, it's a life-threatening event. And you just hope that the bacteria responds to the antibiotics that they've got in the hospital. Uh, but septicemia is something that we should try to avoid at all costs. And so, you know, I, th- I think now to I certainly wouldn't have a transrectal biopsy, and therefore I couldn't ask my patients to have a transrectal biopsy. And I think, yes, the US have been a little slow in adopting this uh, approach. Moving on to focal therapies. So this patient gets diagnosed, and you find that they are a candidate for focal therapy. My, so the first question is, Who's a candidate for focal therapy? And does Gleason score matter? In other words, if you can treat a 7, Gleason 7, why can't you treat a Gleason 9, assuming that they don't have cancer anywhere else in the body and is local and focal? Two elements. Go ahead. Shoot. (laughs) Who's a candidate? It's very simple. You've got to have a visible lesion that you can get a margin around. And by a margin, I mean you can treat five millimeters around it without damaging any key structures. Um, I think that's probably enough actually and i think in the future we'll be treating these visible lesions with a few qualifications i don't mind too much about the grade at the moment of course i do a targeted biopsy just on the lesion i don't sample the rest of the prostate as we alluded to earlier nearly all lesions are gleason 3 plus 4 or more um and and then obviously we use the psma pet as we discussed before uh, just to be sure about the staging if it comes back at high grade so so it's, it's very simple. A single lesion, or sometimes two very close together, uh, around which you can get a margin without damaging any key structures. That makes you eligible for focal treatment. And yes, um, there is no carbon-based life form that can survive 60 degrees for three seconds, or 80 degrees for 1.1 second, or 100 degrees for half a second. And so the issue of resistance is you know, not, it's not an issue. Uh, whether you're using ice at minus 40 or you're using any heat technology, could be laser, could be Haifu, could be any, you know, there, there are lots of them, or electricity, which forces the cells to commit suicide by blowing holes in the cell membrane. Now, obviously, you may not get the energy in the right place or the energy will skip and obey the laws of physics. Remember, all you're doing is sending the energy to the cancer how the energy behaves within the cancer, this is a bit like radiotherapy, is beyond your control, is subject to the laws of physics. So, but in terms of innate resistance, that doesn't exist with physical therapies. Obviously, the higher grade, the higher the risk of microscopic metastases. In other words, the greater the risk that the disease is spread without us being able to know about it. PSMA helps a bit, but PSMA PET doesn't identify microscopic disease. So Gleason 4 plus 5 in an 85-year-old, I may be able to treat beautifully in, in a day. They're in and out in the morning. They're chopping wood the next day. But, but that, they are obviously at risk, a greater risk of microscopic metastasis, even with a negative PSMA. Now, they're happy about that because if that's the case, that would have been the case had they had radiotherapy. Uh, it's possible that the two years of hormones... As, that is typically associated with radiotherapy may have had an influence on the natural history of 
invisible metastatic disease. So the only thing I'm depriving them of, and, and this is something that most men want to be deprived of, which is why they come to me, is two years of hormones um, in terms of therapy. But as we all know, and I'm sure you've had many discussions about the, the, the impact of hormone on individuals, particularly older men, Yeah, you know, loss of energy, loss of bone mass. Yeah cognition i can't do the crossword quite as well as i could uh, you know change in body habitus loss of libido you know and it just goes on yep. and on so so yes i'm i'm all about lesions so so i do an mri to find a lesion and i will monitor that lesion yep. or treat that lesion and increasingly i think and this is the most controversial thing i'll say today is that clinically significant disease is cancer that you can see if you can't see it it doesn't exist. And I'll pause there a second, just like every other cancer. All right. So remember, cancer, the cancer stories start uh, when you can see it. So if somebody has a headache, they send you off for an MRI. If the MRI is clear, you're reassured, you know, you're treated. Uh, if there's a if there's an abnormality in the brain that looks like a cancer, it's biopsied. So it starts with a visible disease, lung, breast, kidney, liver, it, cancer is cancer when you can see it. If there's no visible lesion, nobody sticks a needle into you. And I don't see why the prostate should be any different because all the cancers I've talked about have much worse outcomes than prostate. So, so you'd have to really argue with me to tell me that I need to find all this invisible disease. And this goes back to your previous po podcast that Gleason 3 plus 3 isn't cancer well, nothing is cancer unless you can see it. And, you know, I would argue that Gleason 4 plus 3, non-visible, is not cancer because I wouldn't find it. I wouldn't detect it. And it's only detected serendipitously by if you insist on random biopsies. So you'll miss it more often than you'll hit it. And if you can't reliably identify something in science, you can't study it. And so you have to have, you know, this goes back to Lord Kelvin so as, as a kind of really important principle of um, and non-visible disease, you can't monitor, you can't re-evaluate because you don't know where it is. You don't know where to stick your needle. And that's been the problem with active surveillance historically is that we've never known whether progression was progression or just reclassification. Your needles just went into a different place and found a bit of different disease. Mm. So, so I, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so this, for me, this is the big story of the next 10 years is, is our notion of prostate cancer is going to go from a histological phenotype. Phenotype's a funny word, but just a it's just the kind of way it looks, really. So, so or the way we see yeah, it. Yeah, sure. So in other words, we have a, a, a notion, a conceptual notion of cancer down a microscope, and increasingly our notion of cancer is going to be one that is elicited through imaging. And, and I'm not an MRI. I don't, you know, I don't make any money from MRI. I don't own, well, not knowingly anyway, own shares in Siemens. And I'm agnostic whether that is, is elicited by MRI or PSMA PET or ultrasound or whatever we have in the future. But it's visible disease. Why? Because visible disease represents at least 100 million cells. So in other words, a 0.2 cc lesion is a lot of 100 million cancer cells as a minimum. Uh, and we now know that visible disease is much more likely to be high grade and is much more likely to have key genetic mutations uh, that are associated with progression and subsequent death. Um, I, I can say more about this, but I'll stop there for a moment. That's fabulous. No, I think, look, 
Yeah, you mentioned that at the at our course in June, and you have some great one-liners. The, you know, no no carbon form can tolerate you know x amount of energy. I mean, are you, these are like Mark Emberton one-liners that I just love, and and this notion of visible disease. So, are so, but the German study that you know without biopsies that they remove these you know these prostates and they found the only way I tell patients, the only way to really know if you have prostate cancer, there's only one way. The best way is to remove your prostate and analyze it under a microscope. Yeah. But no one is going to opt for that. Right. And say, Oh yeah. Then you, you can't put it right. You can't put the prostate back once it's removed. Yeah. Not yet. Anyway, I think that everything and anything that. is possible. If you have an MRI and a PSMA PET that's positive, you have prostate cancer. It's based on the German study, hundred mm-hmm. percent verification when your prostate mm-hmm. was removed so yeah so i think we can be as sure as you can be in life or medicine um about the presence or the absence of prostate no, about the presence of prostate cancer if you're double positive on mri psma pet and and then the individual can decide mm. whether a biopsy adds any value you know it's a cancer you know it's volume cancers that express psma pet as well as mri tend to be higher grade so you have a good chance it's going to be a Gleason 4 plus 3. You could argue, you know, what additional information, what real material, actionable additional information are we getting from sticking a needle in if we already know that cancer's... So the Gleason score, the Gleason score not as a staging tool, not as, a, as necessary it's really in interesting. this type so, of scenario? So what, I'll ask you a question if I'm allowed to. So what do you do if you, have, if you find a high-grade tumor in the prostate in terms of staging? Well, if you find a high-grade tumor, let me ask, I'm about to answer the question with another question. You know, so what if you do MRI, PSMA is in a Gleason 6, and we have all this discussion of, well, Gleason 6 is not even prostate cancer, but that's what it found. And when we removed the prostate yeah. only from a no, um, MRI, imaging, it's only a Gleason 6. No, we could have left Gleason that person six. alone. There, were, there, will be, there will be no Gleason 6 in an MRI, right. PSMA positive tumor. Um, they, how about three plus four? How about three plus four Gleason seven low intermediate risk, where even those patients are, you know, are can be on active surveillance or maybe not need I, aggressive I would treatment. Tested. I, I think we're in a new world now where visit, conspicuity, visibility mm. is the risk factor. Um, these are big tumors that were previously missed, aren't in our risk stratification mm. systems, and I think the risk comes from visibility, and the risk is doubled, maybe tripled by double visibility. So if you have a MRI PSMA pet positive tumor, that in itself confers risk. So none there will be no Gleason 3 plus 3s mm-hmm. in that. That I can guarantee and that was evident in the in the German study. Now the, the answer the answer to my question mm-hmm. was PSMA yeah, pet. So so so, right. so you know if you find what yeah. do you do if you have a high Gleason in, in in the prostate you do a PSMA pet. It's our early discussion. Um, and, and if the PSMA pet's negative sure. you treat radically. Well, we've already done a PSMA PET, uh, and it shows that there's no disease outside the prostate, so so you treat radically. So even knowledge of gray, um, you know, is is going to be marginal at best in terms of actionable things that you do, mainly because you've capped the risk with PSMA PET, which, which is actually what you do if you find a Gleason 4 plus 5, and you've done it up front, you know. So you're, if you're logical about it, um, you, you can see a good case for a bio, 
a biopsy-free future unless um, knowledge of the tumor mm. genetics is important in defining treatment. And obviously, BRCA mutation genes in the cancer, um, you know, are more likely to respond to PARP inhibition, you know, you know, late on in disease. Uh, so, so I think we're just at the beginning. Sure, but you don't need prostate tissue to, to determine no, germline no, I genetics. Um, I don't, but there may be other. There may. Be, yeah. I, I was thinking more of the tumor genetics in in this case. My example perhaps wasn't perfect. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. You know, the tumor genetics may be, it may in the future be important. In fact, this morning we had a discussion with our histopathologists and lab scientists about whether we should start offering freezing of some samples of the prostate. In other words, you don't submit them for standard microscopy, but you keep them in reserve in a bio repository just in case in the future uh, knowledge of the genetic architecture of the cancer is important in treatment. And, and we were discussing about we should offer that as standard of care now as a kind of insurance for the future, you know, because this is the pre-treated state. Mm. Once they're on hormones, once they're on, once they've had their radiotherapy, et cetera, everything changes. Mark, that's that's amazing. Thank you for expanding on that. I think that's really important. And it's at least a minimum, I think many those that are listening can have a lot of actionable points from this conversation and certainly where things are going, where, where things are heading, uh, fascinating. Mark, I want to end with um, talking a little bit more about focal therapies. I think you're one of the preeminent um, leaders in focal therapies. What, what is your primary go-to at this point, for, a form of focal therapy that you utilize most? And how's the technology, right? So you cannot treat what you can't see. You made that clear uh, in many times. How's the technology as it relates to the kinds of tumors that you can actually see and treat? Um, so that's the first question is the technology up to speed with that specific, with using focal therapies for treating prostate cancer. And my second question is what focal therapies do you find most useful? I find in the U.S., let me give you some context. I find in the U.S., like everything has its highs and lows. So like the haifu high has come down a little bit. You know, <laughs> 10, 15 years ago, it was like haifu. is like, you know, every investor is looking to invest into these companies and, and so forth. And now that's kind of on a low now. And now it's like cryo is the way to go. And now we have Tulsa here in the, you know, in the U.S. So what do you use most and okay. what, how's so the technology? there's no perfect energy source. And remember... Every prostate is different, right? Uh, if we, if both our brains were on the slab, you wouldn't be able to tell us, apart from the fact that your brain would be bigger than mine, of course. But our prostates would be very different. <laughs> and, and you can identify an individual by their prostate. You can't identify an individual by their brain or their liver. And and so we have this really difficult task that of individualizing therapy. You know, so so my approach is is to use the energy source that I have available really important, and have expertise in and are comfortable using. And that by definition is limited, because I don't have infinite resource or infinite time to develop skills in every single new energy source. And then I choose the energy source for the task in hand. And you know, there's a big difference between a tumor close to the apex of the prostate, uh, near the rectum, posteriorly, and for that, I would choose Haifu because I can concentrate energy into a size of a grain of rice and I can overlap those and I can shape the the lesion that I'm generating. So in other words, the, the shape of the tissue that I'm intending to um, versus 
a large lesion in the left anterior horn of the prostate. That's the front part. So if listeners are thinking about it, so that would be at two o'clock and the clock face. And the last, Mm -hmm. the earlier cancer I spoke about would be kind of six o'clock right down at the the lower limits of the Mm -hmm. prostate, close to the urethra and rectum. So, so for the for the two o'clock cancer, um, you've got lots of room. Uh, there's no rectum. There's no clockwork. There's no neurovascular bundles. You can treat very generously, and I would use an interstitial form of treatment, either cryo to freeze that area, or something called nano knife, or which is called which is commercial the commercial name for irreversible electroporation. I mentioned it earlier, and what it does it it passes very high voltage between needles that are about fifteen millimeters apart. The voltage is greater than the electric chair. So we hit 3,000 volts and, and the mm. patients are paralyzed because otherwise they would move a lot. Uh, but it's a really effective treatment and it's quick. It you know, takes about 40 minutes to do. Mm. Patients tolerate it very well. But I wouldn't use that energy source in a tight space. So, so I think the focal therapist... So, so I'll just pause it. So if you're a focal therapist and you've only got one energy source, the patient population that you treat if you're sensible, is going to be limited by the attributes of that energy source. So you will only accept patients that fulfill the criteria for focal therapy that we addressed earlier, and also fulfill the criteria for that energy source. So if you've got HIFU, you can't treat anterior tumors, because you, the focal length is four centimeters at best. So you, your cases and your experience will be posterior tumors. And if you've got cryo, as your sole form of energy, you'll be avoiding small prostates. You'll be treating principally anterior tumors, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really interesting. And mm-hmm. people publish their series. But of course, everybody's series is different because everybody's using a different energy source. And everybody's selecting their patients slightly mm-hmm. differently based on that. So, so I've tried most energy sources over the years. I find that having two or three at my disposal that I can keep um, skilled at is about all you can manage. We haven't introduced Tulsa. Mm, We've got the mm. equipment, but we haven't introduced it. We kind of don't want to dilute the Mm. skill mix and the energy source. You know, that means we might get left behind. And that happens in in medicine, you know. But, But I think it's going to take quite a bit for us to shift now, given that we've become so skilled and familiar with the energy sources that we're currently using. Mark, this has been great. I knew that you would bring the goods to this conversation because you always do. <laughs> you leave, you always leave the audience. Anytime I've seen you, whether it's a medical audience or late, you know, I just saw a, prior to our recording, pressing recording, record, I saw a YouTube video of you and it seems like it was to a lay group of people and you brought the goods there. You always do. Thank you for doing what you do. Thank you for um, the impressive and and work. It seems, you know, you're so passionate about this. You've been forever um, looking, you know, what's, I remember a few years ago at the AUA, kind of looking for the next, like, you just want to get it right. You want to get it perfect. Uh, at the time, it was Haifu, and I don't think Nano Knife was approved yet. You were looking into. They're always on it, and I just appreciate your work and the things you've written on scientific journals and 
always a pleasure to see you in New York in the summer and at the AUA when I see you. So thanks so much for being on. I really appreciate you. Well, Any final thoughts? Thank you. thank you for giving me the opportunity. Thanks for, you know, all the, all the discussions we've had in the future. I have a lot to learn from you on the holistic management of my patient. And thank you to the listeners. I'd be more than happy to come along again and expand on some of these other issues if you, if you and your listeners want to have me. Oh, be careful what you ask for. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you all for listening. I'll see you next time. Have a great day. Our next sponsor partner has a product I use literally every day. I'm talking about AG1. You know, I've been using green powders mixed in drinks for a long time, and it has not always been a great experience, right? The powder clumps up a little bit. It tastes horrible, but you know what? You chug it anyway because it's good for you. AG1 changed the game. In AG1, you have 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day the right way. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, and energy to help you recover and focus and help you age successfully. To make it easy, AG1 is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And now for a brief disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and we're not forming a doctor-patient relationship through this medium. The use of the information and all links associated with this podcast is at the listener's risk and is not to replace medical advice from a physician or a healthcare practitioner. Lastly, Thoughts and opinions related to this podcast are my own and may not reflect the views of any institution or organization I'm associated with. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Dr. Geo podcast. You can watch all episodes of this podcast and much more by subscribing to my YouTube channel on youtube.com forward slash Gio Espinoza ND. If you love what you heard today, you can help by leaving a five-star review of the podcast on Apple and Spotify, as each review helps us reach more men who are serious about improving their urological health and how to function better with age. And for the latest research and actionable takeaways in the world of men's health and integrative urology, sign up for my newsletter at drgeo.com. I'll see you next time.